Welcome to our next session of Christian Leadership in Public Office, the virtues practiced by great statesmen who changed the world. Today we continue with part three, St. John Paul II, Roman Pontiff and Vatican City State Head of State from 1978 till 2005. And today, during session six, we will speak about the virtue of being merciful. And to remind you, we have started this course and are leading this course each session with looking at one of the other virtues of the Sermon of the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew and how the virtues that Christ shares with us on the Sermon of the Mount are actually virtues that can be practiced by Christian leaders in general and specifically also by Christian leaders in public office. As Christians, the reality of God's unending mercy is at the same time very present in our daily lives, as it is often elusive when trying to fully grasp it. I think we've all made that experience. This session will not be a theological discourse on the meaning of divine mercy. Others could do that much better than I can. Rather, I would like to point out some examples and writings of John Paul II, where he, as a Christian leader, a world leader, tries to put mercy into action by living it and passing it on. Because this is so important, as we will see during this session. It is not only living this mercy, but passing it on. Because, as Jesus tells us through the Beatitudes, we read that in Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, in fact, one of the earliest encyclicals of Pope John II, Pope John Paul II, and he was elected on the 16th of October 1978 and one of his earliest encyclicals as Pope was his 13 November 1980 encyclical with the title Dives in Misericordia on Divine Providence. This was one of his first and one of his most important encyclicals right at the beginning of his papacy, where he made clear that one major focus of his papacy would be the spread of understanding the divine mercy, which then ultimately led to the installation of Divine Mercy Sunday, the second Sunday in the Easter octave or the first Sunday after Easter. And he did this towards the end of his pontificate. Much inspired by the writings 
of the Polish visionary Saint Faustina. By the way, uh, he grew up very close to where Sister Faustina herself had lived and received her visions. So also geographically speaking, there's a lot those two have in common. Really, if stones throw away in Krakow, he grew up. Uh, he grew up and he lived his life when he moved there to Krakow. And this was very close to the convent where Sister Faustina was. And in 2012, he, John Paul II, entrusted the whole world to divine mercy at the International Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Krakow, Poland. And so when the saintly John Paul II died in April, to be precise, on April 2nd, 2005, on the vigil of Divine Mercy Sunday, that was obviously not a surprise. John Paul II died himself on the vigil of Divine Mercy Sunday, the Divine Mercy Sunday that he himself had promulgated. Thus, it is only logical that John Paul II is also referred to as the Divine Mercy Pope. He's known as the Divine Mercy Pope. This is what John Paul II says about this himself. Right from the beginning of my ministry in St. Peter's See in Rome, I consider this message of divine mercy my special task. Providence has assigned it to me in the present situation of man, the church and the world. It could be said that precisely this situation assigned that message to me as my task before God. He said this on November 22nd, 1981 at a Divine Mercy Shrine in Italy. And then later on, he says something that again shows how important divine mercy, the whole concept of mercy was to his papacy. He says, those who sincerely say, Jesus, I trust in you, will find comfort in all their anxieties and fears. There is nothing more man needs than divine mercy. That love which is benevolent, which is compassionate, which raises man above his weakness to the infinite heights, to the holiness of God. Beautiful what he says there. He said this at the Divine Mercy Shrine in Krakow on the 7th of June, 1997. There is nothing more man needs than divine mercy. That love which is benevolent, which is compassionate, which raises man above his weakness to the infinite heights, to the holiness of God. And here we come to the concrete relevance and application of the reality of divine mercy 
in our lives as Christians in general, and here within the framework of this course, specifically where it regards leaders in public office. As human beings created in the image and likeness of God, something that we should never forget, which specifically Christian politicians should never forget, every single human being from the moment of conception until death is a human being created in the image and likeness of God. This is what we have been gifted with. This image and likeness of God is what we have been gifted with by our creator, with a benevolent and compassionate love that may raise us above our weaknesses towards holiness. Because we have been created in the image and likeness of God, John Paul II says, we can be lifted above our weakness. We can be lifted above that. And we are all called, because that is the logical next consequence of that, the next step of that realization. And we are all called to pass on this love of God as love of neighbor. We all know the scripture passage where Jesus is being asked, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. As a public official, aware of this gift and taken into consideration your responsibility for the good of society, concretely, this means, according to John Paul II, that the Christian leader in public office is called to execute his or her high office with the following non-negotiable principles guiding all decisions and actions. Let me repeat that here. If we are to follow what St. John Paul II has been trying to tell us about divine mercy, how each one of us can receive it personally, but how we are also called to translate that into love of neighbor. Laying that out for what this means concretely for a Christian leader in public office, there come three or two non-negotiable principles and one consequence of that that should be guiding all decisions and actions of a Christian politician, of a Christian serving for the good of society. These are benevolence, compassion, and leading from that benevolence and compassion to the raising of one's constituents, one's country, or whatever one is responsible for, to rise above their human frailties, to find their full calling in life and in society as human beings. 
Now let me repeat that because it's very powerful what John Paul II is leading us to here and what John Paul II would be leading those in public office to. The non-negotiable principles of benevolence, compassion, leading to the raising of one's constituents, one's country, and those one is responsible for, to rise above their human frailties and to find their full calling in life and in society as human beings. Isn't that a very powerful, a very beautiful assignment that every Christian in public office could take up on him or herself? And summarized, one can say this in one term, human dignity. And you all know that human dignity was the rallying cry of the papacy of John Paul II. It was all about human dignity. And it finds itself in this, what he said, those two principles, benevolence, compassion, leading to the rising up, yeah, people allowing people to rise above their human frailties, to find their full calling in life and in society as human beings. I deliberately repeated this twice because it's such a powerful message that the great saint gives us about human dignity. Now, the policies that a Christian legislator or political leader promotes or supports need thus, as a logical consequence, to be always directed at protecting and raising up the lives of the people he or she carries responsibility for. And not to pull them down either by an attack on their liberty or by encouraging them through laws and policies to become enslaved by their passions. The latter obviously being a specific problem of modern societies. And I don't think I need to give you examples of that. And there are two areas of what I might call the human application of the gift of divine mercy. So the human application of the gift of divine mercy in which John Paul II invested much effort and that are very relevant for Christian leaders in public office today. Two specific areas of focus in which John Paul II saw divine mercy needing to be in action, put into action by God through the people who serve him. And those are the sanctity of marriage and the essence of religious and conscience freedom. Two hallmarks of his time on the throne of St. Peter. The sanctity of marriage and the essence of religious and conscience freedom. And through highlighting these issues and really fighting for them, as we know, John Paul II was seeking 
out of the divine mercy, he found himself gifted with to uplifting people, uplifting people around the world out of the misery caused by an incorrect or even completely absent understanding of the true meaning of marriage and sexuality and the suffering and bloodshed caused worldwide by an ever-growing intolerance towards conscience and religion. Whether coming from political rulers or special interest groups operating nationally and internationally. Many of the challenges in this regard we see today were, if not already clearly present at the time that John Paul II reigned as pontiff, then at least already it was very clear that it was coming. And he was very prophetic in seeing this coming. If you go through the writings of John Paul II from the beginning of his papacy, you see that everything that is happening today in these areas, also in other areas, but in these areas, John Paul II saw it coming. John Paul II warned for it. So out of his deep sense of mercy, his attitude to his constituents, and as a pope you have many constituents, that include basically the whole world, his attitude was one of benevolence and compassion. He, as a leader, wanted to raise up people, empower them. For the World Youth Day in 1991, that took place at the great Marian Shrine of Chestakoa, and I still remember I had the great privilege of being there myself, in fact, still remember waiting for the Holy Father to come and sleeping in my sleeping bag on this wide open field in front of the shrine in Czestochowa in Poland. Still remember it very clear. This is what he told us, young people at that time. John Paul II said, how can we fail to be amazed at the heights to which we are called? The human being, a created and limited being, even a sinner, is destined to be a child of God. So you see uh, this message going through this whole papacy. He always called the young and the old and all of us in between. He called us to go to new heights, to go and find the full potential, the calling that each one of us has. And he says, how can we fail to be amazed at the heights to which we are called? This is again this message of John Paul II, out of his benevolence and his compassion, wanting to raise up the people, to let them rise to the heights to which we are all called. And later in that same talk, he says, I repeat again today, he's addressing the youth here, but it 
counts for all of us. What I said at Santiago de Compostela, young people, do not be afraid to be holy. Fly high. Be among those whose goal are worthy of sons and daughters of God. Glorify God in your lives. You hear that? It's again this message of John Paul II. Fly high. Be among those who are pursuing goals in life that are worthy of being sons and daughters of God. So you see that John Paul II, living from this mercy, as a leader was always calling his people, his constituents, those for whom he was responsible to rise up, to grow to their full potential, to follow their calling, to become ever more human. And this is what John Paul II sought to achieve through his ministry, his leadership, to let his people pursue worthy goals. And by doing so in the spirit of the truth on what it means to be human. This is why he is so relevant for Christian leaders in public office today. Because as I will be discussing later, isn't that the call for every Christian leader in public office, for every Christian leader in general, for everybody who carries responsibility in general? The same for us parents. Isn't it our calling to make sure our children, those we are responsible for, go to the heights to which they are called as sons and daughters of God. So John Paul's, two, John Paul's two's teaching on the sanctity of life, on marriage and sexuality, should be seen in this light, not as so many commentators then and now would like to say, Oh, there you have this moralizing Pope or this moralizing church who's only putting rules and is only limiting us in our freedom. No, none of that. The teaching of John Paul II and in general, the teaching of the church has to be seen in this light to lift people up from the heavy weight of self-destructive lifestyles and broken relationships to come to first understanding and then living how our creator has wanted us human beings to live lives of fulfillment, following his plan with the human person. That is what John Paul II was trying to say, leading us to leading a stable, healthy life, even when struggling leading to stable and healthy families, even when every family is struggling, has its struggles, has its wounds, has its disappointments. Families that are the foundation stone of any functioning society, as John Paul II never failed to repeat. He did not mean perfect families. He did not say families where everything is always ideal and perfect, because such families do not exist. What John Paul II meant with lifting out of his 
mercifulness. Families, couples, young people, to the heights to which they are called is to work every day towards better understanding and living according to God's plan. Not to ideal situations that do not exist, but to real situations where together the couple, the family, whoever is struggling and fighting, but out of conviction to live according to God's plan for us. Even that that is difficult, as we all know from our own lives, from our own brokenness, from our own struggles. This is important that when we speak about mercy, we understand that. Yeah? That we understand that the brokenness of us human beings is included in the package of mercy that also John Paul II understood so well. This is what John Paul II says about the family. The family is a community of persons and the smallest social unit. As such, it is an institution fundamental to the life of every society. What does the family as an institution expect from society? First of all, it expects a recognition of its identity and an acceptance of its status as a subject in society. This social subjectivity is bound up with the proper identity of marriage and the family. Marriage, which undergirds the institution of the family, is constituted by the covenant whereby a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of their whole life, and which of its own very nature is ordered to the well-being of the spouses and to the procreation and upbringing of children. Only such a union can be recognized and ratified as a marriage in society. Other interpersonal unions, which do not fulfill the above conditions, cannot be recognized, despite certain growing trends which represent a serious threat to the future of the family and of society itself. This John Paul II wrote in a letter to families on the 2nd of February 1994 at the occasion of the year of the family. For this Christian leader, this great Christian leader, mercy meant raising up families, strengthening marriages, because our societies as we see it daily around us, disintegrate into chaos and conflict when marriages and families collapse and the suffering, especially for all those involved in the collapse of individual marriages and families is unspeakable. 
So would it not also be the task of every merciful Christian leader in public office to always prioritize, fight for, and do everything possible for the non-negotiable foundation stone of marriage in society? And let us be very clear here as Christians. As Christians, we know that there is only one type of marriage, and that is the union open to life and for life between one man and one woman. And shouldn't the priority of every Christian legislator be the well-being of every family, of all families? This is, I think, the question that John Paul II would ask us from heaven today, looking at his teaching on mercy. So this was St. John Paul II's first priority. A second one was his concern for freedom of conscience and religion, much under attack then and like marriage and the family, even more so under attack today. Karl Wojtyla, this was before he became Pope, had personally lived through and suffered from two equally evil and bloody regimes that, no surprise, hated family and religion and tried to destroy these where they could. Nazism and communism. Totalitarian regimes that ruled large parts of Europe, including Poland during much of the 20th century. And although thankfully both systems were overcome in Europe, the cancer of communism lives on today in countries like North Korea and China, where the bloody persecution and discrimination of people of faith and conscience continues unabated in China massively increasing under its current leader, who even wants to rewrite the Bible to reflect communist ideas and who has been heavily persecuting people of all faiths. Today, I was reading a shocking article uh, coming right out of China where the communist party is now installing in all churches and other religious buildings, whether it be temples or mosques or even synagogues, they are installing face recognition cameras inside all these buildings to exactly monitor what is going on there. Pope John Paul II had very clear ideas on the fundamental right that every human being possesses to freely choose or not to choose his or her religion, live by it and express it. And I think that one of the pontiff's most important document on this topic, he published on the 1st of September, 1980, 
at the occasion of the Madrid Conference on European Security and Cooperation, in brief known as the OSCE. And that was addressed to the heads of state who signed the 1975 Helsinki Final Act. This was such an important moment in history where countries in Europe that would later form the OSCE and that included the East, the, at that time, Communist Bloc, Eastern and Central Europe and the Soviet Union, signed the Helsinki Final Act, which recognized rights and liberty, human rights, fundamental rights, religious freedom for all peoples. And the interesting thing, it's not the topic of this course, is that the Helsinki Final Act was very important for those groups of dissidents in Eastern and Central Europe, like Solidarność, like Charta 77 in, in Czechoslovakia, where they could actually use that and go to their communist totalitarian governments and say, listen, you scientists, these are the freedoms we have. So John Paul II seized on that and on the 1st of September 1980 published what I find one of the most important texts he ever wrote on freedom of conscience and religion. And before um, quoting you some very important parts of this text, I would like to briefly read to you from the testament of the Holy Father, John Paul II. It's a very interesting document. It's his testament that was published after his death. And in his testament, in the same year that he publishes this document I'm now going to be quoting you from, prior to publishing this document, he writes something in his testament. You know, his testament is obviously not a very long document. And it's mostly speaking about what should be done with his very few possessions after his death and some spiritual reflections. But then suddenly, in between all that, comes a note he wrote into his testament between the 24th of February and the 1st of March, 1980, which tells us how freedom of religion and conscience was absolutely vital to his papacy and how he suffered from you know, all the ways in which this was harmed around the world. This is what he writes in his testament. The times we are living in are unspeakably difficult and disturbing. The church's journey has also become difficult and stressful, a characteristic proof of these times, both for the faithful and for pastors. In some countries, as for example, the one I read about during the spiritual exercises, the church finds herself in a period of persecution, no less evil than the persecution of the early centuries. Indeed worse because of the degree of ruthlessness and hatred. Sanguis martyrum semen Christianorum. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Christians. A quote from Tertullian. In addition to this, so many innocent people disappear, even in this country in which we live. He speaks about Poland, he speaks about the Soviet Union, he speaks about China uh, at that time. And 
Of course, he also referred to the very difficult time that Poland was going through at that time because the communist regime was trying to suppress Solidarność, the movement, um, the, 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 the movement that, so to say, erupted after the first visit of John Paul II in 1979, and that led to a crackdown by General Jaruzelski at that time. But of course, he was also referring to the difficulties within the church. So I find it very remarkable that John Paul II, in his testament, which is really reserved for other reflections and other things, speaks specifically about his personal worry on where it comes to the persecution of the church. So let's look, and I have prepared it for you so you can actually, um, if you go to uh, handouts, there is a document I've prepared there for you that you can now download. It's called Pope, Pope John Paul II on freedom of conscience and religion. And uh, if you have not yet downloaded it, uh, please go ahead and do it now. It's under handouts in your screen. Um, so just um, push the download and you will get that document. Um, let's, let's have a look together at that, at that document. And those of, uh, those of you who are viewing this session at a later time, feel free to send me an email and I'd be happy to send you this document by email. So let's first move to uh, page five of this document, uh, because here he gives some very vital considerations on freedom of religion and conscience that are more than 100% relevant today in the challenges we are facing today with the increasing persecution of not only Christians around the world, but other faiths as well. But as we all know, uh, the largest group of people being persecuted, the biggest percentage of all persecution in the world is directed against Christians. So if we look at page five of this document, John Paul II says that the starting point for acknowledging and respecting that freedom is the dignity of the human person, that respecting that freedom, and he refers to religious and conscience freedom. He says the starting point for acknowledging and respecting that freedom of conscience and religion is the dignity of the human person who experiences the inner and indestructible exigency of acting freely according to the imperatives of his own conscience. And I find it so fascinating that he was speaking about this at that time, specifically looking at you know, the persecution by communist regimes, but also already having in mind what happens in secular societies. And certainly this was already foreshadowing what we are seeing today in secular societies, where ever more the conscience of people is disregarded. We see that in the discussions on conscience uh, for medical professionals. Then let's move to page six. On page six, the first column and uh, the first paragraph, he says, 
This concrete liberty has its foundation in man's very nature, the characteristic of which is to be free, and it continues to exist, as stated in the Second Vatican Council Declaration, even in those who do not live up to their obligation of seeking truth and adhering to it. The exercise of this right is not to be impeded. The exercise of this right is not to be impeded. And then a little bit later on, he says, a second and no less fundamental element is the fact that religious freedom is expressed not only by internal and exclusively individual acts, since human beings think, act and communicate in relationship with others. Professing and practicing a religious faith is expressed through a series of visible acts, whether individual or collective, private or public, produced in communion with persons of the same faith and establishing a bond through which the believer belongs to an organic religious community. Now, this point is essential. And this is essential because in our society today, this is often forgotten in our secular society. This is always why I caution people and politicians, do not speak too much about the freedom of belief or the freedom of worship, because that's far too limited, especially the freedom of worship is far too limited. Because worship means, okay, you can have your worship service in your own church building behind closed doors. That's fine. That's your private little world. As long as it stays there and the moment you come out, you leave it there and it has nothing to do with the rest of your life. No. And this is exactly what John Paul II says here. And this is why this quote is so important. We are speaking about the freedom of conscience and religion. And religion is much more than worship. Worship is just one part. Freedom of worship is just one part of freedom of religion. Because as Christians, as our faith calls us to, our whole life should be a unity in Christ. That means everything we do, we think, how we act, where we go, is inspired and guided by our Christian faith and not just the going to church. And this is something that he points out here and that we cannot repeat often enough today in our societies because in many of our societies, we are moving more and more in a direction where freedom of worship is all that will be left and that God is banned from society and that people can no longer have personal convictions, a conscience that can play any role, especially not in politics. That is the direction we're moving in. And that is very problematic and we should try to avoid that. And then later on the next page, page seven, he says, but man's social nature itself requires that he give external expression 
to his internal acts of religion that he communicate with others in religious matters and that he profess his religion in community. And that community is not only the church or the church building. That community goes far beyond the place of worship. And then on the next pages, 8 till 10, he then specifies and very clearly explains what are these personal and community levels at which freedom of conscience and religion actually moves. And he says, page 8, I am now. In fact, in the expression and practice of religious freedom, one notices the presence of closely interrelated individual and community aspects, private and public, so that enjoying religious freedom includes connected and complementary dimensions. And then he lists them, and I will briefly fly through them. First, he speaks about the personal level. He says, freedom to hold or not to hold a particular faith and to join the corresponding community. Freedom to perform acts of prayer and worship. And once again, we are at the personal level, individually or collectively, in private or in public. And to have churches. Freedom for parents to educate their children in the religious convictions that inspire their own life. Freedom for families to choose the schools or other means which provide this sort of education for their children without having to sustain directly or indirectly extra charges. Freedom for individuals to receive religious assistance wherever they are, especially in public health institutions. Freedom at personal, civic or social levels from any form of coercion to perform acts contrary to one's faith. Read here, for example, medical professionals. Or to receive an education or to join groups or associations with principles opposed to one's religious convictions. You cannot force people to join an organization that goes against their convictions. Freedom not to be subjected on religious grounds to forms of restriction and discrimination vis-a-vis -vis one's fellow citizens in all aspects of life. And then he speaks about the community level, which is this other level that is often being ignored. He speaks about freedom to have their own internal hierarchy as a church, freedom for religious authorities, notably in the Catholic Church, to exercise their ministry freely. That is, for example, certainly not the case in countries like China. Freedom to have their own institutions for religious training and theological studies. Freedom to receive and publish religious books related to faith and worship, and to have free use of them. There are many countries in the world where even possessing a Bible will lead to a death sentence, like, for example, North Korea. Freedom to proclaim and communicate the teaching of the faith, whether by the spoken or the written word. 
And he refers there specifically to the Helsinki final act. At that time, of course, again, thinking of the communist regimes which were stopping that. Freedom to use the media of social communication for the same purpose. Freedom to carry out educational, charitable and social activities so as to put into practice the religious precept of love for neighbor, particularly for those most in need. Here we are dealing today with the serious situation where Catholic adoption agencies are being forced to implement practices that go against Catholic teaching, although they do amazingly good work. That's a serious problem we have in our society today. And then furthermore, with regard to religious communities, which like the Catholic Church, have a supreme authority responsible at world level for the unity of communion that bonds together all pastors and believers. Here recently, a uh, religious sister who leads a convent was telling me that in a country like France, it is becoming increasingly difficult even close to impossible for religious communities, for monasteries, to live their specific calling in the way that is according to Catholic teaching. Why? Because the state is imposing all sorts of rules and regulations that make that ever more impossible and is, is, is imposing all sorts of um, all sorts of things that go against the principles of such monasteries. And at the international level, he says, freedom of free exchange in the field of communication, cooperation and religious solidarity and the holding of multinational meetings. And finally, also at the international level, freedom for religious communities to exchange information and other contributions of a theological or religious nature. Now, this little bit long quote, I hope you bear with me. Um, I think you, you see now why it is such an important text. And what I find so fascinating, this is in 1980. Yeah? This is 40 years ago, this document was published. But every single sentence we read here is not only relevant today, but we see that all these freedoms that John Paul II was speaking about where it regards religious and conscience freedom are under threat today. And not only from totalitarian regimes, but equally from liberal democracies around the world. And that is something that we should be paying very close attention to and where all Christian legislators are called to act upon. So this last quote, I find especially relevant today, since ever more clearly we are seeing, as I just said, and I want to repeat that, not only communism, as was the case in 1980, at least in Europe that communism is over, but it is not in other countries like Asia, but it is not the only threat to this fundamental liberty, but our self-imposed militant secularism and in countries like China, heavy-handed state-imposed atheism, those are the real threats today. 
to religious freedom, to conscience freedom. On the one hand, militant secularism, and on the other hand, heavy-handed atheism. And you know what the interesting thing is? The difference between these two is becoming ever more unclear. They are ever more moving towards each other. Militant secularism and heavy-handed atheism. In their tactics, in their arguments, they are moving ever closer to each other. And it's ever more difficult to distinguish them. And that is something that is certainly not leading to the raising up of people to live their full potential. So, in conclusion, the example and calling this great Christian leader, St. John Paul II, in public office and as a world leader, gives us is that the merciful, the merciful, those that are merciful, uplift the human being in its dignity by raising up the true meaning and practice of marriage, sexuality, and the family, whilst fighting courageously, especially today also, for every human being's right to life and freedom of conscience and religion. When Catholic and other Christian leaders in public office and those Christians working in the area of public policy or advising in that area, if we take this virtue of the Sermon of the Mount of being merciful, serious, then following the words of John Paul II in rising up to raise up the people to, he said it in those beautiful words, fly high to come to their full vocation, to come to the full meaning of their life. It requires in this attitude of mercy to pass on this mercy to our neighbors in the ways he described through lifting up the great gift of marriage and the great gift of freedom of conscience and religion. This concludes our sixth session. Our final session will be next week. And in this session, we will look at the meek will inherit the earth. It will be a session where we will again look at the three great statesmen that we have discussed during these series. And we will look at the virtue of the meek who will inherit the earth.